This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Welcome to episode 30 of the Mad Band Damrack Strange Showcase, where I invite bloggers, filmmakers, and fellow film junkies to help me work for the 1001 film introduction to Golden Underscore Cinema, which is the Mad Band and Damrack Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Owen Jones, of From the Depths DVD Hell and Channel Superhero. And on this episode, we'll be looking at a pair of 70s psychological thrillers, starting with John Hancock's wonderfully titled Let's Scare Jessica to Death, as well as Brian De Palma's 1973 film Sisters. But my guest tonight is not only one half of the Feminine Critique podcast, but also a published author, and whose acclaimed debut novel, Wake Up Maggie, is still only the second book to break my no ebook rule. That, of course, is until she recently released her new collection of short stories. It, of course, gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show Christine Makepeace. Hello, Christine. It's uh, great, as always, to have you back on. Well, thank you. It's nice to be back. That's cool. Um, obviously, tonight you've picked a pair of psychological thrillers for us. I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. It was just in, what, just a, a complete flip. Well, I went to pick another movie, <laughs> and I was told that it was already picked. So um, my cohort, my partner in crime, Emily, and I picked the same movie without knowing it. And um, so I had to repick, and I guess, I don't know. I, I picked Sisters, right? It yes. was Sisters to replace it. So I guess I just kind of thought, why not? That would make a nice pairing. But I didn't really give it much more thought than that. Okay. It worked out well. I mean, these yeah. are both first-time watches for myself, and it's always interesting to go into a show not having seen any of the films. So mm-hmm. um, it was nice, especially with Sisters, to finally have crossed it off the list. The Palmer, again, being one of those directors that everyone's supposed to have seen their back catalogue of, but I still have, like, massive gaping holes when it comes to my department and sort of viewing uh with obviously having seen things like The Untouchables, Scarface, and Mission Impossible. But certainly these early films... Uh, the ones I've always missed out on. So it was nice for you to obviously pick one of those early films to uh, look at this evening. Well, uh, I'm glad. It's my. It's now my new goal every time I come on. <laughs> just find something I haven't watched. Yep. Obviously, before we get onto the films this evening, I just wanted to obviously just uh, start by discussing your writing, really. I mean, you obviously started off as one of the editors of Paris Cinema. You yes. then moved on to doing fiction work, and now you see yourself more as a as a fiction writer. Is that correct? Um, I guess so. I mean, that's what I've really been focusing on. I do have bursts where I really just want to talk about movies, but um, it doesn't usually last long. So, so you, <laughs> but now you haven't. You're not saying that you've hung up sort of your your critiquing spares, so to speak. Oh no, I'm far too opinionated for that. Um, it just I spent um, seven or eight years, I guess, just almost exclusively writing about film, and it it took up a lot of my my time and energy and my passion. So I've only been focusing on fiction for two years, three years. 
So I'll, I'll stick with it for a while. To seeing how it how it plays out then for the minute. Yeah, un- until my inspiration dries up completely. <laughs> well, it's not just just fiction. You've recently also been doing some poetry as well. Yes, I I have it, been doing horror movie themed poetry. <laughs> Which is certainly a unique thing to be seeing at this time of year. Obviously, we're in the run up to Halloween as of this summer recording. So every horror blogger, pretty much anyone who's got a film blog, is doing Halloween. Yes. Um, so it, it kind of breaks it up from just seeing, you know, everyone just doing horror reviews. It's nice to read something other than just a review of a horror movie or see someone do like a documentary review or something. It's nice to have that palate cleanser, really. But obviously your first novel, Wake Up Maggie, what inspired you to obviously come up with just writing a novel, first of all, really? Um, I don't, I don't know. I just had an idea and I thought to myself, I could stretch this idea out long enough. And, and I tried to, and then I successfully did. Uh, I've typically been a short stir- story kind of person, very intimidated by full-length um, stuff. This And Maggie is on the short side, for sure. It's not 500 pages or anything. But uh, I, I sat down, I started writing, and I thought, okay, this is all kind of mapped out in my head. I could continue this for a solid, you know, 40, 50 chapters. So when you sat down to write, you had sort of like the mental map, but you hadn't anything sort of written down as to, okay, this is point A I want to get to and go from, and this is point B I want to end up at. There was no sort of map. You just sort of sat down and wrote it. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. I I, I tried to um, map it out as best as I could, but for the most part, I kind of would wing it. When I first sat down, I thought, okay, I have the beginning and I have the end. And then as I continued, you know, characters change and develop and the end just didn't seem realistic anymore. Uh, that's not what my characters would do, so I had to change it. Yeah. So any mapping I did really got thrown out. Okay. And for anyone listening who's not familiar with the book, I mean, what would be a brief synopsis of it? I was, at the moment, I'm sort of, whenever I try to explain it, I, tried, I end up giving too much away. So I'm just going to let you try and explain it best you can, really. It's a modern gothic horror novel, a lady in a house, unreliable narrator, ghost story, but is it type of thing. So if you're if you're into stuff like that, you probably enjoy it. <laughs> and obviously coming from the background in film critique, I mean, do you find it hard to come up with more original ideas or you find yourself drawing reference points from obviously a vast cinematic knowledge, really? Um, I I don't know if it, it, you said it in a real fancy way. I reference movies a lot. <laughs> That's kind of like where I draw from. And in everyday life, I will say like, "Oh, well, geez, that made me just that made me feel just like how Gina Davis must have felt in The Fly when she, you know, saw Jeff Goldblum falling apart." Like I, that's how I relate to life, which maybe isn't that healthy. But when I'm when I'm writing, that's how I will relate as well. Like. There's a, you know, the main character often likens things to movies like Poltergeist and like just because that those are my cultural reference points and how I kind of relate to the world. Okay, I mean it's at the same time there's it's you're sort of in that era where people within the writing we've sort of really I don't know really so the last ten years really developed more of a geek culture. So mm-hmm. people will read things like John Dies at the End, Ready Player One, and uh, perhaps to an extent things like Raw Shark Text, and they kind of latch on to those 
reference points. We've become sort of more of a pop cultured sort of yeah. society in a way. So I think whereas before, if you were like writing this sort of like in the nineties, that you would wouldn't be able to get away with these sort of pop ref pop culture references. But do you think now is sort of an easier time to obviously write with such obvious references on the page? I mean, I I hope so. Um, I know that not everyone is as as pop pop culture centric as as I can be. But I mean, then you have things like like Family Guy, which is just uh, uh, like a 22 minute television show that is is reference after reference after reference and references itself and then eats itself and it's just one big you know dump of visual cues that we're all supposed to understand and if you do it's funnier um when someone read the book they were like oh i really like i make an allusion to the television show dallas because like to me that's such a cultural reference point like it's such a gag we've made the dallas it was a dream the whole time joke <laughs> before and even if you've never seen it i feel like a lot of people know that and they were like well do you think people are going to understand that and i like i hope they do and i think they will but even if they don't i don't think it's going to take them out of the story yeah, it's funny you should obviously mention dallas because obviously when i recently guested on your show another real podcasting highlight uh, <laughs> it's another milestone to mark off really and we were obviously talking about step for wives and entering into it I knew what a step for wife is even though I'd never seen the film so yeah you often find that people often have these cultural sort of pop cultural uh, reference points even if they haven't seen the series that it's actually referencing because they're just so so well known so I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that, that obviously we use more pop cultural references I mean is that the sort of writing you prefer which has these sort of reference points or do you prefer something like more like King or Barker, who's sort of like more sort of original self-contained within their own worlds. Um, I don't think I care necessarily, but I don't particularly enjoy King. So, I mean, that probably says something. Um, for <laughs> for me, a few books. So <laughs> yeah, just a few people have heard of him. I don't know. It's cool. I don't mention it in, in large groups for sure. But like, I just find for me. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a pop culture reference, but I like something that grounds me in their reality. And if their reality is my reality, then why not? You obviously chose to follow up uh, Wake Up Man. You didn't do another full length novel. You've instead chose to go the route of doing short stories. Yes. Um, I mean, do you prefer sort of the the longer stories, or do you prefer the sort of freedom that a short story gives you, where you can explore many ideas without obviously having to commit to like 200 300 plus pages um i i as as like a, a means to tell a story i i certainly enjoy both of them some stories i don't think need that much room to breathe though it's kind of like a get in get out like make your point set your stage and be done with it um i like brevity i like you know really telling a story with efficient use of words and and i guess maybe that's why i'm even just the poems are appealing cool. like um, say it and shut up <laughs> well i mean you've certainly always been forthcoming on your opinions on on well, pretty much everything it seems anyone who's uh, obviously glanced at your twitter feed or listened to an episode of the feminine critique and again it's something one of the reasons we enjoy having you on the show uh, mm. is because you've never been afraid to share your opinions. So I just obviously have to 
ask really how your obviously style of horror writing compares to the current uh, the current sort of popular style of horror at the moment really i mean would you say it's sort of more traditional sort of horror that you're writing or would you say it falls more within the what we now class as to be modern horror i don't know what's modern horror <sighs> well if you were looking at the box office, it's uh, basically anything that's shot on shaky handheld footage. Or well, it's definitely not shaky. It's something that's uh, something that's cliche-ridden. Well, afraid to try anything, anything new, really. Um, I think with modern horror, we're we're very much back in the stage of we want to use tried and tested stories and plot lines. I think this is why we're on what Paranormal Activity six because obviously we've established our storyline with the first, and while we're remaking films such as The Omen and Poltergeist um, and very unimaginatively we're getting very few imaginative remakes like The Hills of Eyes or The Wonderful Maniac Maniac was really good, yeah Um, I guess it's not, I mean I don't want to alienate people by saying that it's like like gothic like it's in in an older style but it is, there's smaller stories with fewer characters efficient stories vague open endings so i mean it's been compared to maggie's been compared to audition it's been compared to like shirley jackson novels so i like to think it's well-rounded enough to be accessible to people that do enjoy a more modern take on things but i don't necessarily think that that's what i'm doing you just writing sort of the stories you like to read then. Yeah, I I mean there I guess in some of the short stories there there's um a bit of a twilight zoneness to some of them and those are definitely things that I um reacted quite strongly to when I was younger. Obviously you mentioned the uh, Twilight Zone so I mean were you a fan of the series growing up uh, sort of like Twilight Zone Out Limits those sort of anthology shows? Yep, loved them. I grew up with the Twilight Zone. I had no idea that like that's not what every other kid was watching. <laughs> Did you have a particular favorite episode of Toby Twilight Zone? Um, I love Monsters of Dew on Maple Street. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with them by name. Um, that one's really, really good. It's a really big misdirect twist episode. Um, a lot of psychological stuff is in that one. Um, and I like the sad ones. I can't remember the name of the one, but the old lady who um, keeps getting creepy phone calls and she finds out that it's a it's a dropped phone line on her husband's grave, and he was just trying to get in contact with her. Like, ugh, that one's so upsetting. <laughs> I mean, did you ever watch any of the new uh, Outer Limits when they sort of revamped it for the 90s? I think so, but I don't really remember them. Okay. I'm always curious to know what, how people compare, because a lot of people say that the original black and white series were like the definitive ones, and that anything that followed was to a lesser extent and I still remember being terrified by like episodes like the Boogeyman from the new Outer Limits and back then it was really the stopgap fill between seasons of the X-Files you had a season of the X-Files finish and then you had a season of the Outer Limits so it was BBC's way of trying to keep their audience from going off and you know getting scared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I never I mean I think that they were on in my house but I never really paid attention to it Would you like to obviously see uh, or write even write for that sort of style show Really, yeah, like a Masters you, of Horror or something like that. Brian Fuller is re- is redoing um, Amazing Stories, See? and I just want to tweet at him nonstop that he should just give this ungilled 
novice that he's never seen or heard of before a chance. But, you know, it's not how it works. <laughs> I mean, it's now, even if you're offering to write something for free, it's now seen, being frowned upon, as Will Wheaton in the uh, in the press recently is uh, yeah. obviously saying about writers giving work away for free, not getting credits, and sort of write, that you shouldn't be writing for publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you have any sort of strong feelings? I mean, do you think it's important to be paid over, obviously, having exposure, or do you think it's there's a way to walk the uh, tightrope between the two? I believe that wholeheartedly. It's, um, you don't want, the. it's like this in, in a lot of industries, like um, freelancy contract type industries, that you want the work and you want to be working. So you will almost price, undervalue yourself, price everybody out. So it gets, it's gotten to the point with writing, especially because, I mean, I was there, I've written, wrote for free for websites for years, that you just don't get paid. And so if enough of us just all agree silently or together that we're not going to get paid, now no one's getting paid. There's just, if you want money for it, like, oh, I'm sorry, someone else is going to do it for free. Yeah. And I, I, I get that that's just the way it is, and I would never fault anybody for doing that. I mean, I did it and probably would still do it if it was a good opportunity. This is the thing. That, I mean, there's a lot of big name writers who are making a lot of big talk about saying, oh, all writers should just like put down their pens and we should all go on strike. But the fact is, if they're putting down the pens, you can guarantee that some hungrier, younger writers are just going to go along and yep. pick up any work that you're not going to do. So. Yep. That's exactly true. Um, and I mean, it's like, from what I understand, it's like similar in, you know, graphic design and, and art spaces. Like, if, if you see a job and you go like, I can do that job for $500, so, even if you're shooting low, somebody else is going to be like, no, I can do it for a quarter of that, just because they want the job. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of like one of the first things you, you advise is that you never say that you can't do a job. Yeah. I mean, the amount of certainly writing jobs that I've taken on uh, not knowing anything about the subject and I think to an extent you can bluff it if you're asked to write about particle physics and you don't know about particle physics you're going to be a little more stuck but I'd certainly within the film community you can pretty much self-teach yourself with the resources we have available yeah. and I think do you feel because of the resources we have now it's now opened up the market so that it's, it's no longer as hard to get your work out there as it used to be uh, sort of back in the day where you had to go through editors and you had to send out copies to god knows how many publications just trying to get that one or two jobs there i think that's a big part of it i think you're you're completely right i also think a lot of it just comes down to what type of stuff people are actually looking to consume online particularly like like how listicles are now a thing like long form writing has been falling by the wayside since i did paracinema like it was people wanted smaller bite-sized things and also and this is just my opinion i've noticed that it seems like people don't want to be talked down to in any type of review or writing so they want somebody that that their critique of a movie is awesome which is fine i'm not gonna judge you but like that's not what i want (laughs) I, i miss the personal touch that a lot of Oh, especially a lot of bloggers. They, they, I love it when a blogger is writing about something and they bring a personal experience into, yeah, into the piece. And it seems to be missing, especially from a lot of younger writers. Um, and I don't know if it's because they're lacking sort of life experience and the sort of 
just writing from the perspective of just being a, a, a film fan or what it is, but they often seem to be missing like that little personal touch to the work, and it's just so frustrating. Um, but at the same time, I understand. I mean, we're no longer in the sort of era where you have people like uh, Pauline Kael. I think mm-hmm. even like Roger Ebert, sort of like those grand poobars of really our industry, would have, if they didn't have obviously their reputation, their legacy established. Uh, with their style of writing, that sort of holier-than-thou style, I don't think, as you said, it would be a lot more difficult to get established. Uh, yeah. Days, I would say. It's a shame. I mean, there are still good people doing good work, but they're not the ones showing up on, on, the, on the sites. I mean, it's all clickbait sites still. Yeah. I mean, anyone you want to sort of name, give them a free plug to? Oh, geez. I, don't put me on the spot. Everybody. <laughs> I'll, for, I'll forget something and, and say it wrong. I, I mean, I'm not sure. Daily Grindhouse, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the guys over there. They, they do great work. I have a, a lot of my old paracinema friends are still writing, and they're all amazing and awesome. So, I'll come come to the come to my Twitter and I'll link you to stuff. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's I was worrying. I mean, I was going back over like the the Illuminati when I first started. I think there's about four of us left of who mm-hmm. was originally writing. There's so many people just sort of like quit along the way. I mean, you have people like Bryce of uh, Things That Don't Suck. Who last time I checked, I think he was off running the world I was doing something like that and for the longest time it was like he was like my rival and it was, it was just so sad when he just suddenly stopped yeah um and I think that's that's the problem with with blogging if, because people aren't getting paid there's not there's often times where there's no sort of drive to continue and it's just a shame especially when you see so many sort of lesser video critics obviously really being able to develop careers out of the work even though they're not carrying like half the skill of a, a written blogger and it's yep. because of the format they're working in yep sometimes I mean you have to I've had to abandon jobs I like gigs I really cared about because I you know needed to work gotta pay the bills <laughs> yeah I'm like sorry thing that was enjoyable and that I liked doing I have to go work now yeah I think again, this is the thing. Before you have like responsibilities in life, and you can you can afford to like nick and dime it and live on fifteen p noodles and yeah, like <laughs> just wasting away. But you know, you're you're working still, so. Mm-hmm. Nice. I I think maybe there's a lot of hustle and a lot of deadlines involved in in that game that I can't commit to anymore because I I do have to, you know, live a certain life. <laughs> And the, having a life now. Yeah, and the and the in the in the fiction writing I kinda get to play my by my own rules. Like I don't have to feel like under deadline to get three posts out this week, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously just to lighten it, because obviously you're a little heavy there. Um you've obviously said already you're a big fan of the the remake of Maniac, uh, obviously starring Elijah Wood who's Myself become a lot more interesting since he finished in the Lord of the Rings films. He's mm-hmm. really become like this real darling of the indie film, especially with indie horror. Um, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's been fantastic. We, I mean, he obviously set up his production company uh, just to specialize in indie horror. I mean, we've had uh, obviously his Maniac release. Um, I'm trying to think of his other film that he did. I think it was Grand Piano. Um, and he recently. I don't did... know of that one. Um, he also recently did a, a film with Sasha Gray. Um, yep, Open Windows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I Gray. see anything that Sasha Gray's in. 
And I mean anything. Like, we're not just... I'm I'm pro Sasha Gray. Okay, the problem I have with Sasha Gray is that she's someone who knows how to sell her own bullshit. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously, her name is supposed to be based on this the scale of sexuality between obviously between heterosexuality and uh, being uh, homosexuality. Gray obviously falling in the middle, you know, going from white to black. I think yes, she stood a pretty girl who did did some interesting work in the field of pornography she's now trying to move into mainstream cinema a leap which is very hard to make very few actors have been able to do it i think james mm-hmm. dean's sort of edging his way in he obviously did the canyons which i don't know if it's ever gonna happen of. though but i don't know if it's ever gonna happen i don't know if that leap that bridge is ever gonna be crossed i keep i mean i keep reaching out to james dean i keep saying come on and you know hang out and and on the uh, show we'll talk some court cinema but as yet, he's, to, he's yet to take us up from the offer. And I mean, he's got the sellability. I mean, he's the nice Jewish boy. Yeah. Without so, talking about his other assets, which he's known for. So. I'll, I'll reach out to him <laughs> and see if he wants to talk to me. This is, de- <laughs> this is derailing quickly. That's fine. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's surprising the only actor who's really sort of made the breakout is Ron Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, the man who's been around, I don't he's been around for centuries I in Portland. I think so. it's his longevity that's really helped him in that. Yeah. I think if Sasha Gray's still doing this 40 years from now, then there will be people that only know her from that thing she did and not because she did porn. The thing with Sasha Gray, and this is what confused me, because from when I last checked, she's now retired from porn. Is that correct? Um, To my knowledge, yeah. I don't um, and like... Um, I think I'm getting this correct. I believe it's Belladonna is also retired to Fanny yeah, Burn and Angel. Yeah, and... Un- until um, um, Belladonna is, I think, I'm almost positive she is. She was in, um, what's that movie that I didn't want to see? Can't think of it. Because I didn't, Inherent, Vi- Inherent Vice, wasn't okay. she in that? <laughs> yes, she was. <laughs> that movie I didn't want to see. Because you know which one that is. I, I mean, I liked in her advice. No one else seemed to like it. They all found it really confusing and a bit of a mess. But I, re- I enjoyed it. But then again, I like Southland Tales. So what does that say yeah, about me? Yeah, I do too, though. I know quite a few people are going to disagree with us on that one, but they're wrong. <laughs> Southland Tales is it. wonderful. Yeah, I, d- I did enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, it's, again, it's frustrating. You have these actresses and they leave the industry and they mm-hmm. try to make breaks into mainstream cinema or even independent cinema. And the way that they now choose to do it is to say, is to bash the industry that they were so devoted to previously. Well, that's the way you, you distance yourself from the bad thing so people like you. And it's really shocking, especially when you've got someone like Belladonna who was like this real breakout star. I mean, she she really paved the way for the likes of Joanna Angel, that alternate girl yes. scene. I mean, Suicide Girls, let's face it, wouldn't really exist without Belladonna establishing the boundaries within hardcore. Obviously, they took the more softcore angle with mm-hmm. that thing and now it's really be- the old girl has really become the norm it's just another it preference definitely girl. is it's not even a thing anymore and it's just so frustrating when you see see them and they are bashing this industry and it's sort of like why can you not just be like proud of obviously what you achieved within your industry I mean these people were like figureheads of their industry they're, they're big names and especially when you have so many people who are coming through the porn industry and they sort of like make one two films and then they fade away they don't reach the same levels as like Jenna Jameson uh, mm-hmm. i trying to remember her name now uh, Jessie Jane yep. 
um, who was obviously in the adult version of Pirates, which I have to say, more enjoyable than Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, I, I am also a fan of that blockbuster Pirates. I have that to was... say, you, they, Love Film put the softcore version on there, so it basically cuts everything out. Mm-hmm. And you're just like watching a raunchier version of Pirates of the Caribbean, but it's, it's, a good it's time. a hell of a lot more enjoyable. It's even better acted. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Pirates movie, so yes, I enjoy I enjoy that as well. That I remember when that came out, people were going crazy for like what a huge, big budget extravaganza it was. It's very so, cute. I still remember, obviously, when it came out and it was like, this is more money than we've ever spent on pornography before. Um, yep. And it really kind of made the, paved the way for like new sensations with their parodies. Um, mm-hmm. And I love the fact that when we have parodies now, they seem perfect. It's no longer the case of sort of like these rope tie-ins, we have like these seen perfect adaptations such as the Big Lebowski adaptation. Yes, that uh, Big Lebowski is very, very good. There's a really good Psycho one too. That's really interesting. Um, I'm a fan of the parody or the satire, depending on what kind mm. of thing they choose to do. Um, it's I, I, I think of, but there's still, they're not putting any money into these movies anymore but with the parodies you will see like really good sets and really good makeup there's um a star trek the next generation one that's also impressive like (laughs) really really well done meticulously done costumes and makeup it's great yeah i'm always surprised as to what they choose to parody especially like you got wood rocket who i think really leading the way i mean they obviously did Nardians of the Galaxy, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, they just go for the most absurd shit they can do. But it's, the fact is, when they're scripting these things, they're so funny. Yep, like, they're hysterical. Um, and it's like, it's, it's no longer the case of, oh, we've got to get from, got to f- create filler between scenes. Yeah. Um, they're actually putting the effort, but I think they're really pushing the boat out when you're attempting to do the porn version of SpongeBob SquarePants. It, that one's absurd. Some of them hinge on um, disturbing to watch. Um, there's a Hunger Games one that's really funny. But yeah, the SpongeBob SquarePants one is kind of upsetting. And I think there's a Bob's Burgers one that I don't like <laughs> because it makes me uncomfortable. I, I have no idea where to even start uh, <laughs> with that one. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Um. Oh, where, to, where to really uh, go that from? was I mean, quite quite a tangent actually, it's, it's obviously you obviously express more than one occasion your fascination with adult cinema I mean is that something you've never sort of considered doing in some form, form of project like writing or podcasting or just doing some form of exploration of, of that sort of genre really um, I have thought about it people have asked me if I wanted to do a podcast with them about it it's never really taken off um, I don't feel like I have the breadth of knowledge to write anything about it. Like, there are porn scholars. Like, I don't... I, I just know anecdotal stuff. I mean, maybe a little bit more than the average person might. But, yeah. <laughs> but I don't I don't feel like I have enough knowledge to perpetrate, like, like I have anything to say. I think uh, the problem with any sort of writing is that you've got to basically... You're going up against uh, Chris Novak's uh, Skinner. Mm-hmm. And basically, that's the sort of yardstick I measure any sort of work in the field against. Even though half the times he doesn't even talk about the films, but I feel if you're feeling brave and want a controversial read for the subway, then uh, Skinner is a fantastically funny read. Um, you know, maybe give you some new titles to look at. I don't know. Yeah, good times. As I said, I mean, 
with horror on, on a whole, I mean, do you think that the genre is sort of running out of ideas that we're now in this sort of phase where we have to just constantly remake things, we have to constantly play it safe, or are the people out there still making interesting horror films? Um, I mean, for myself, as I said already, the Maniac, I think, was probably one of the last horror films which really sort of caught my interest, that and maybe like The Guest, but again, I would put that more as a psychological thriller than Yeah, horror. for sure. Um, there's still lots of really good horror films getting made. <laughs> like, like there's a lot. It, things are great. I'm super excited. There's always new wonderful things. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just concerned, really. I mean, I saw that, kind of, like, um, Poltergeist had been released. released oh, Poltergeist was trash. You can't look at the main. You can't look at the mainstream stuff. Poltergeist was absolute garbage. Um, the honeymoon. Was a was a nice little scary movie. The Canal was really good. Um, everyone saw Babadook. Uh, it Follows was obviously very good. Um, there's a there's a ton of them coming out. Uh, Mr. Jones is a fun little movie. Uh, there's one I one I just watched last night with um, that dude that was in Lost. I can't think of his name. But like, there's really the Shrine was really good. There, I mean, a lot of them are a little bit more low budge. And yep. sometimes that can hurt it because, you know, they sometimes look low budget. But there's a lot of really, really good stuff coming out. I mean, I would really like to see more sort of horror-focused directors. Yeah. Um, I mean, can, you, can people really even do that anymore? I believe so. Um, Adam Green, Joe Lynch, <laughs> uh, the Soska sisters, my personal favorites. Yes. <laughs> I, apart from, I mean, obviously, as we discussed in your previous thing, uh, Dead Hooker in a Trunk is sort of like my exception to all of because I've loved everything that they've done. I love See No Evil 2. American Mary is still one of the most exciting horror films, really, of the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's very few films that have come close to it. I mean, just obviously, I'm just trying to obviously wrap my brains really just to think of those directors who are obviously focused to horror. I mean, Rob Zombie, I think. Is con he for a while he was sort of like seen as the guy who could, but now he's sort of like wanting to prove he's more than horror. I mean, he's talking about his graphic yeah. marks biopic. Um, and I mean, for a while he was attached to the Charlie Manson uh series mm-hmm. that they were doing, but obviously got beaten to the punch by Zodiac, not Zodiac, um, Aquarius, uh, which I believe was direct, which obviously developed by Showtime. So, <sighs> well, I think there are some directors, there's just we seem to be at this generation where when I was obviously coming up, you had like directors like Carpenter, Craven, Romero. You had these guys who were associated with horror and we don't seem to have that anymore. It seems like horror once again is becoming like a very dirty word that like it was in like the early nineties before Scream revived it. I don't know. Like I, I did think of a good one. Mike Flanagan is basically the guy doing horror right now. He did Absentia and Oculus. And I believe he's doing Gerald's game. He's got that movie coming out called Before I Wake. Like that's that's for me the dude to watch. Like he's 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 living the dream right now. All really interesting original ideas. And uh, is it just me or is Eli Roth a hack? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I, there's a lot of the horror guys. I think for a while the guys that would like 
they're just not for me. It was a lot of bro horror for a while. Pardon, pardon the term, but like a lot of the Adam Green stuff, a lot of the Paul Solette stuff is just is not was not for me, and that's all that was coming out that was original horror for a while. Um, I'm really glad there's some smaller, maybe more psychological, more accessible stuff that people are doing. Obviously, the two films that you've chosen tonight—they're both in from the seventies. Really, a golden age for horror cinema would you say or would you say that the gun age of horror is more towards the 80s i think we all have our own opinions on that like i think it's like with that thing they say like you're the best saturday night live cast is a saturday night live cast you grew up with or something like i think you know when you discovered horror that tends to be the genre that you're, you're you're real fond of i really like the 80s I really like the 90s, like, to a fault. Thank you. I, I really like, I like 90s high school horror. I, I love the faculty and Scream, and I know what you did last summer to a lesser degree, and stuff like that. Um, but the 70s is special. It's, it's a very psychological time, for sure, and it's usually very trippy and bizarre and, and experimental, so that's always fun. I'm so glad that you, you share my love for 90s horror. It's mm-hmm. so underrated. And especially movies like Scream, I think only now we're realizing how important a movie Scream is. Um, I mean, just recently watching it for reviewing on the blog. It just It's just so fantastic. You can see why it revived horror the way it did. And yes, it led to some a number of lesser projects, such as like Valentine, um, I Know What You Did Last Summer. But there was a couple of good ones, as you said. You had The Faculty in there. You had Urban Legend in there, mm-hmm. um, which were really good. I mean, also on screen, as, as I think we got into on Twitter, um, I never noticed too recently the lime green uh, coat worn by Gail. Yep, yep. She has a nice green suit in Scream 1. And then in Scream 3, Parker Posey has a nice green suit when she's <laughs> playing her. It was the best. Yeah. If you've not seen Gail's green suit, go back and watch it. It's not like you. It's like a wasted time to rewatch Scream, certainly. So. Um, I just recently watched all four of them. It is definitely worth your time. And you also rewatched the whole of Halloween as well, which is uh, a real yes. credit to your uh, your craft, really. Thank you. It drove me a bit mad. Um, <laughs> it was ten films altogether. So. Yeah, and it's nice to see Jamie Lee Curtis back on TV again. She's doing Scream Queens, which, <laughs> if you ignore the fact Ryan Murphy's involved in it, is. Uh, it's, it's uh, promising, what I've seen. That's in the new Scream TV series. I was hoping to have watched all the Scream TV series before we recorded tonight, but it's uh, unfortunately failed to happen. But what I've seen, I've enjoyed. So. Yeah, you have to let me know what you think when you're done with it, because I am very pro Scream TV series. That's cool. Um, but both your films and selections this evening came with, I'm right in saying, your seal of approval. Is that correct? Um, I had never seen Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Okay. But I had read extensively. This is a big movie for people to write about, especially when they're talking about, um, like, unreliable narrators, um, mental illness in horror film. Like, this is a big one to reference. Yeah. I mean, that's the film we're obviously going to start with this evening. Obviously, back in 2006, the Chicago Film Critics Association pronounced Let's Scare Jessica to death the 87th scariest film ever made. This is probably also the same council that prepared Don't Look Now as being one of the top 100 scariest movies of all time. 
Uh, another film, if you go back uh, to one of my previous episodes, you'll find how much I disagree with him on that point. Um, again, <laughs> this one, I can't say I'm going to be too positive about. Um, I'm going to pass it over to yourself in a moment, Christine, but if you're not familiar with the film itself, it's uh, released in 1971 and directed by John Hancock. Uh, the film is follows a young girl called Jessica. She's just been released from a six-month stay in a mental institution, and she's basically hanging out with her husband, Duncan, and their best friend. They've located a, a farm known as the Old Bishop Place in Connecticut, and they're basically happy they moved in there with their, Woody fre- their hippie friend, Woody, and they find a <laughs> mysterious red-haired drifter called Emily, who's also living there. But rather than going, what the hell are you doing in my house, you darn squatter? They invite her to live for them. But, you know, this being the 70s and the fact that they're driving around in a hearse, you have to kind of give up some leeway here. But yep. of course, as, as you expect, strange things start to happen. And Jessica can't tell whether she's losing her mind or whether these things are actually happening. Um, what did you think of this one then, Christine? Um, I really liked it. Okay, shut up. No, carry <laughs> <laughs> This is the one that you didn't like? Yeah. This, to pull which, back which, the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I did not know which film it was, but I was aware that one of the films didn't go over too well. Yeah, when, when we were obviously uh, talking before we came on to record this evening, I said to, said to you that one of these films, like, almost broke me as a critic. It was like, occasionally you encounter that one film and it's like, that's it, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to review anything more. I'm just done with these films. And this film left me like that. I, yeah, I really didn't get on with this one at all. I don't see what the hype was about. And uh, yeah, it's just, I failed to connect with this one, should we say. So I'm really interested as someone who liked this film to obviously uh, see what you thought of it. Well, I liked I liked it as I said. I I enjoyed it because I mean, it's a very minimalistic type of story. Again, like there's really four characters, maybe five. Um, I thought the story was told really efficiently, although it was still kind of confusing, but not so confusing that you are frustrated and you want to give up because you don't understand that whatever's going on. Um, I thought it was creepy there was a lot of talking through it. Like there's a plot point spoiler where someone who is currently with the group is seen in a photograph from very long ago. And I just wanted to shake everyone and ask them why they weren't putting that together yet. Um, But other than that, I thought it was sufficiently creepy. There was a mute girl. There was a dead body. I thought they, they, they really effectively conveyed um, Jessica's struggle. Like, I don't know if she's actually seeing these things. At one point, Duncan even says, like, I'm seeing it too. Like, it's so cool that we don't, we don't know. Like, that's how it sets the stage. Like, so can we trust what we're going to see through her eyes? I thought it was really well done. Yes. Obviously, we, Jessica, I mean, we never, as far as I could tell, we never find out why she was in the mental asylum to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film constantly has these moments where, we're hearing Jessica's thoughts and it kind of turns into pigs in space, the same as the octagon where we have this echoey voice Yes. Uh, because we kind of just have a sensible voice. So we have to try and amp it up by having this stupid echoey voice. So um, whenever it went into that, I was just cracked out because my mind just instantly goes to pigs in space. So I didn't mind the voiceover. I thought 
um, I listen to the content of the voiceover as opposed to okay. the um, <laughs> um But, I, I mean, I could totally see why it wouldn't work. It's, I suppose it was a bit goofy. Uh, it's not so much as goofy. I mean, I give it the fact it's 70s. Um, mm-hmm. I give it like that leeway. You kind of accept the same with the the second film we're going to discuss even that certain attitudes have changed. Yeah. Um, and obviously how things are, are shot, especially with the technology they had back then, you, things are shot in a certain way. But there was so much to this film which didn't make a darn lick of sense. It seemed like such a hodgepodge of ideas and it just felt like wretched tosh towards the end. I was, really? I was like, really? This is what? And then it, it just ends and it's like, what the well, hell was that what, all about? What didn't you what didn't you like? What didn't work? Okay. Um Right. Just trying to think where to start on this. Um okay, we have Jessica who's like from the start she's doing like these tracings of gravestones. So Yeah. Um why she's doing it? No one no one reasons given. Um why are they driving around in a hearse? Again, no reasons given. Although the locals do call them stupid hippies, which is pretty funny. They do, and and they say like it's cheaper than a station wagon. Like I don't know, <laughs> that's just the type of people they are. Like for me, that was just character building. Like they drive around in a hearse. And I her, don't mind that. I, I think that them driving around in a hearse and her doing the grave rubbings. I think it just is is alluding to like the fact that Jessica has dealt with her mortality to a certain point. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to give it too much credit. Um. And I think when we're obviously, it seems to be setting it up as a ghost story. Yeah. And then it decides, oh, no, wait, this doesn't work as a ghost story. So we'll have it as a vampire story. Uh, I thought and, that was great. And then it's sort of like, no, no, we aren't going to do it as a vampire story. We just have some weird hypnotic curse thing going on. And then there was just so many like parts like, I mean, I mean, I was kind of buying into it. I was like, okay, I'm watching a ghost story. And like when she's swimming in the lake and like she gets grabbed and dragged under, I was like, you know, I'm can totally buy into that. And then we start going into the fact that the locals are bandaged. Yeah, which was cool. Marks and stuff. And it's kind of like, well, why we got the vision of the antique shop owner being dead. What the, what that, what's that about that? There was just too much confusion. It was like too many ideas being thrown at me, but like nothing trying to tie it all together. And a lot of people are going to be like saying it and go, oh, this is Jessica's mindset. You know, she's mentally unstable. So, you know, she keeps having all these visions and keeps thinking these things are happening, obviously because of her being released from the um, mental institution. We can't tell Mm -hmm. whether it's actually happening or not. And I feel that it's too much of a crutch for the film to rely upon. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's why I didn't like it. And I think if there'd been, even if it was like a bit of an info dump at the end, and like, oh, this is what all this means, and this is why it's happening, and then we bring it all together. But there seemed to be like no attempt to bring it all together, and it wasn't in a good way, like a Fallucci movie. Like if you watch them like the Beyond, which again doesn't make a huge amount of sense, but you're happy. You kind of trust me, your director. You're happy to go on the ride. Um, with this one, it seems like. Yeah, I'm just going to throw a bunch of random stuff at it and, you know, we'll just say, oh, is it all in her mind? Is it not in her mind? And let you figure it out. Oh, I didn't think it was random at all. I thought the bandaged townspeople was a really um, neat storytelling device. I thought it was really cool that that actually kind of played 
like it actually mattered. They they came back to it. I thought it was really cool that the lady drowned and we didn't really know what she was. She was definitely, you know, controlling people and turning people and killing people. And she killed that mute girl. It's just really cool. I thought it was neat. I, I liked everything I understood and I didn't understand. Okay. I, re- I really did like it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't feel at all like you felt. <laughs> that's it, clearly, but at the same <laughs> time, I mean, that's, that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's, it's fine that you like this film and I didn't get it, but. <laughs> yeah, I liked it a lot. I, I mean, I, and I probably would rewatch it at some point. Okay. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't join you for that screening, but, <laughs> but, uh, all the more power to you. I, and I think again, it was this this hippie aspect that you've got this communal living arrangement. The fact that mm-hmm. they let they let the squatter move in with them. That was so like, I really th- those were one of the moments where I I wanted to be like, all right, guys, this isn't the best idea. And I liked her dialogue at the beginning though. It was really vague, like when they were asking stuff about her past and where she was from. Like yeah. I was like, she's gonna be a ghost. Like she's. <laughs> Like I knew, I knew something was going on, and I thought that was really neat. Because if you didn't approach it like a horror type movie, you might not have none of those lines might not have read the same. Mm. But yeah, they totally shouldn't have let her live there. I have to also uh, like question how calm they are when well, they 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 arrive and they find someone's living in the house. Yeah, like I mean, all had, right. Had it been me, I would have like completely freaked out and. Like gone after him with a shovel or something, but no, I agree. I we we said the same thing when we were watching it. I was like, why don't they just kick her out? Why are they inviting her to stay? <laughs> yeah, you know, thou shalt not let thou mooch it into thou heart. Yes, <laughs> and it didn't really work out for them either. So next time they should listen to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, this is something. I, I, I mean, obviously, I'm bored into the fact you know the hippies. So yeah, communal living. You know, that makes mm-hmm. sense. These four adults like living together and expressing free love and whatnot but at the same time they're not sort of like your stereotypical hippies there's no tie-dye and and braided hair or anything like that they're all kind of like uh sort of more free spiritual middle class people really yeah they were just going you know to make a living working the land yeah they (laughs) they decided they're gonna buy this orchard i i'm really curious to know what their plan was because they, they said they're all about escaping the city and, and that, but apart from occasion, we see them like occasionally spraying the trees, but they don't actually seem to be making any plans to do anything. I think they spend more time looking for things in the house to sell than yeah. to actually trying to form any sort of business there at all. The orchard was just uh, a, a means to get that other guy like out of the scenes. Like, eh, he's going to spray the orchard again. <laughs> he loves his tractor. He really does. It didn't, like, that didn't work out for him either. No, it's so like, oh, where's Woody? Oh, Woody's on the tractor again. <laughs> Got to spray those crops. Oh, funny, funny, funny. I mean, of course there were goofy things, and there were things that didn't make sense. But for the most part, I think it all really worked. Okay. For and, me, at least. Yeah, because we obviously open at the end of the film. So we open yes. with Jessica sitting in the boat, and she's like, I can't return to the shore. And you're thinking, oh, what's, what's on the shore? Why can't you return to the shore? And then we don't get any resolution for that. We get something completely different at the end. Because at the end, she's there. I sit here and I can't believe what that it happened. Yeah, um, she, she can't go back because there's all those people that are trying to kill her. She can go to the other side, though. 
It's yeah, not I mean, like she, she has to sit in the, the the lake in a boat. Well, she'd have to row all the way over there. Did you see her rowing? She's not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, to be honest, I checked out at that point. <gasps> so maybe it made more sense than you think, and you just weren't receptive to it. I, I did like the Wicker Man vibe when she meets the feminist, like, this very ain't running for you. Yeah, that see that was cool because then you you get like a kind of a slow reveal of like how deep this thing goes, you know? Like it's cool. Is, I don't know. It's not, is it much of a reveal? I mean, she's yeah, supposed it's... to be a vampire, but she's running around in daylight. But they never explain what she is. Some people think that she's a vampire. I, I think mean, it's I've... okay to not explain what she is. Really? I yes. mean, I think I, I think I would have liked some sort of resolution. Yeah. I mean, again, I would have been happy with she'd just been a ghost. Yeah, I um, think she, she's timeless. She's ageless. She's a succubus, maybe. Because maybe. if you notice, they're all men. And, like, she, like, there ain't no women around. And it's, all, it's also a town of old people that they mm-hmm. move to. There's no young people in this town at all. Yeah, so there, there's maybe more going on than we realized. A story within a story, if you will. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, I get what you're saying. Like I it doesn't. I've, yeah, I mean, it doesn't a, excuse the fact that if they if there was an interesting story there and they didn't tell it in a way that was compelling to you, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think you're certainly selling it more than the film sold itself. <laughs> that's anything. I, I liked it. I mean, it worked for me. I'm glad. I mean, did you have a particular favorite moment at all? Um, I did like all her internal stuff. Um, I thought towards the end when she like barricades herself in the room. And she's kind of going a little bit nuts. That was really interesting. Um, I thought it... I mean, I, the the version I watched, the compression was really poor. So I can't say that it looked nice. But I mean, the setting worked really well for it. Like, it felt very claustrophobic at times. Yeah. And I, the scene I really liked, I loved all the underwater sort of shots where you got the yeah. uh, the girl in white under the water. I think that, those were really, really cool shots. The person who tries to attack her at the end, I have no idea who that was supposed to be. <laughs> so it was the like, guy in the suit in the water? Like random water zombie attacks, and it's all like, oh, was that supposed to, person supposed to have some importance to this? I, to be honest with you, I didn't really know who that was either. And we also have that weird sort of false, uh, sort of fake lesbian moment where she's hanging out with Emily and she keeps insisting on putting suntan lotion on taking her swimming. I think that she was she was just trying to get her in the water. And then yeah, she that... tries to drown her. But she well, like thinks it's funny. Well, yeah, because she's the vampire ghost. But yeah, I mean, obviously Jessica then sort of freaks <laughs> out and randomly hits the weird sound, but then she returns, which is the thing. She sort of like escapes, and then she comes back, which again, there was no sort of sense to it at all. Well, she I didn't mean... really feel like she had anywhere to go, I don't think. So wait, the girl who I guess is named wait the girl's named Emily, right? Emily's yeah, Emily's the uh, the the one the transient. The, yeah, she's the uh, the one we assume to be the be the vampire. Yeah, she's the ghost vampire. So she was trying to ghost vampire Jessica in the water. Like she wanted Jessica to return to the water with her because Je- she keeps saying, "Jessica, aren't you ready to die?" So she's trying to get her into the water, and Jessica's like, "No, I don't want to go in the water." <laughs> so she pushes her in the water and tries to drown her. So good. Sorry, ghost vampire. Is that is that a thing? Or is that I like... think. Well, just because something doesn't fit into like a 
like a established trope. I mean, it could be a, a great many things. I mean, I think that's up there with Weird Poodle, which was the other one that was thrown at me this week. <laughs> you know, just because something's not an established trope, <laughs> I thought I thought it worked really well, though. I thought it was interesting, and it was confusing, and a lot of their choices didn't make sense. But I think a lot of it was because of the time period and because it's a horror movie. Like, some of the choices were just really questionable. Yeah. I don't know. I think I went into this. I think I expected too much. The title in particular, it gives it the film the feeling that it's going to be more schlocky than it is. It, it plays things a bit too much, too straight for such a great title. <laughs> um, I mean, if I see a title like Let's Get Jessica to Death, I assume that I'm going to get something... You know, something cheap and disposable. Kind of like uh, children shouldn't play with dead things or pieces. Yeah, you want Jessica to get scared to death. Yeah. I want, like, I you didn't want her want, to be, like, genuinely frightened. Yeah, I want some, like, ropey zombie thing or something. You know, like like the go in the water. I mean, that would have been fine. I don't need ghost vampires and confusion and... Well, see, that might be where we differ because I think my expectations were right on going into this because I knew so much about it already. Okay. And maybe yours weren't because you, you went in a little bit more blind. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, while it obviously has its um, acclaim, it's, never, it's not a film that I've really heard talked about that much. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly other films which we assume would be on the list that are, are more sort of well talked about, such as like, the aforementioned um, "Don't Look Now" or "The Vanishing." Yeah, um, I assume that those are more sort of uh, talked about than than this film, and it's weird that it's held in such high acclaim. Really, um, I mean, do you think it deserves its place on the the top 100 list? It depends on the criteria of the list. I mean, okay. I know that's a shitty thing to say, but, like, I definitely think it belongs on some lists. Okay, but... if, if we were to, like, put it on the Christine Make Peace Top 100 horror movie list, would it make that? Probably not. But, like, maybe 150. <laughs> Sneak it in there. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, is there anything else that you really want to talk about in this one? Because... It's yeah. It, it kind of came and went. It it didn't really do a do a lot for me. I mean, I've seen worse films. Films such as Deaden, anything directed or associated with No Clark, <laughs> certainly be rate lower than this. But uh, I'm in no way wanting to sort of rush back and see it again. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. I re- really think. I mean, if it if it misses, it's going to be a big miss for for anybody watching this. I, I liked it. I watched it in one sitting. Like, I it held my attention the whole way through. I was engaged. I was wondering what was going to happen. I'm, I mean, it's a big thumbs up from me, but I, it's a hard sell, too. Yeah. Like, I don't, I could, if you said I have no interest in seeing this movie, I would be like, yep. <laughs> like, I get it. As I said, I mean, do you have anything else that you're, anything else that we haven't discussed already that you want to talk about in this one? I don't think so. I think you pretty much covered it all. I'm glad you brought up the old people with the bandages. I almost forgot. Yeah, they again, that just reminded me very much of Silent Hill. Yeah, it's really neat. And I think maybe something that it could have done to be more appealing to someone as yourself with your opinions on this film is to kind of expand that more. Yeah, I, I mean, I like a, a creepy town, but I think if we're doing creepy town, I kind of want them to go 
more more of the way with it. If, if you're going to yeah. give me a creepy town, like do something with it. Like I love the fact that we've got these villagers, and you're not sure what their deal is. Mm-hmm. But I would like for them to have an agenda, or in this case, if they're all psych- psychically controlled, to like do more than just like do a bad zombie impression that we get at the end. Yeah. Um, like obviously, if you look at someone like Silent Hill, where you obviously have the inhabitants of the town, but they all play their various purposes, whether it's being part of like the town's history or they're actually now the evil within the town. Uh, they, they all seem to serve a purpose. And again, same with the Wicker Man. It's all part of the large conspiracy. But here in the town, we have all these like, interesting and odd characters, but they just don't seem to do anything. They don't seem to serve any sort of purpose. And that was kind of a bit of a letdown for myself that at the end, it's all like, oh, we've established all these like creepy villages and let's yeah. just have them all come together in a mob. I can I can see that. I mean... It completely worked for me, but I can totally get why it wouldn't work. Okay. For um, sure. Further viewing, if you do like uh, Let's Get Jessica to Death or you want something in a similar vein, where'd you go next? Oh, boy. I don't know. Hitchcock's Rebecca. <laughs> that's what it really reminded me of. I, I mean, I don't know if that's a valid thing, but it's a lady in a house not knowing if she... I mean... It's a lady in a house not knowing if she's going crazy. I kind of have a soft spot for that. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, obviously, more sort of crazy uh, ladies, really. That sort of uh, female psychosis. It's, But all I can think of at the moment is just creepy towns. Obviously, things like The Wicker Man, Silent Hill yeah. are going to be like my recommendations, and I feel that they do we'll it better. But. Well, see, this is here. You go. This is why we feel differently about this movie. I focus on the lady who doesn't know if she's going crazy, and you focus on the place in which it's happening. So, obviously, the place in which it's happening that did not pay off. So, yeah, obviously looking at the wrong part. So, well, not the wrong part, just different parts. Okay, very <laughs> diplomatic of you to say. I am very diplomatic. I was expecting you to go. How dare you don't like this movie? No, I don't do that. Everybody has their opinions. Right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, though, we're going to look at our second film of this evening, uh, looking at Brian De Palma's 1973 psychological thriller, Sisters. Hello, everybody. On behalf of Nick, Joe, and Vern, we would like to invite you back for a brand new season of the As You Watch podcast. In our upcoming season, we will be talking about franchises, trilogies, and series of movies that you will recognize and some that you may not. We will also continue to post fun and insightful interviews with many people in the world of entertainment, as well as feature a lot of great guests from other sites and podcasts. So be sure to check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podomatic, and on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our older episodes on our site, asyouwatch.wordpress.com.
And we're back. Uh, still joining me this evening is, of course, Christine Makepeace. Hi. <laughs> In the first half, we discussed uh, with diverse opinions, should we say. Let's get Jessica to death. Before we obviously move on to our second film this evening, uh, Brian De Palma's Sisters, I just want to give a quick shout out to um, Channel Super Pro this month for being running their Tales from the Crypt blogathon, which again has also seen an opportunity for my other show, uh, TV Good Sleep Bad, which I do with Mr. Daniel Lackey of the Nightmare Gallery, to do a special show where we looked at a couple of episodes. We looked at Comes the Dawn uh, from episode, season six. And we also looked at the cartoon spin off, uh, Tales from the Crypt Keeper. Uh, we looked at the first episode of that one, While the Cat's Away. So if you like uh, 90s horror, certainly check out the show. Uh, it is available now on Podomatic and iTunes. Uh, while Pool Party Radio have been looking at Don't Who's Afraid of the Dark and the guys over at Junk Food Dinner have also done their own. Uh, retrospective of Tales from the Crypt as they chose between them uh, eight episodes to go through and it uh, was another great show from those guys so if you haven't checked out their shows uh, definitely give them a look uh, now because it's definitely worth checking out. Yourself uh, Christine were you a fan of Tales from the Crypt coming up or? Um, It was something that was around I didn't really retain a lot of it. I liked it though I mean it made an impression in, in a sense that like I know who the Crypt Keeper is and stuff. So, you know, it's more sort of a pop cultural standpoint. You know the show more than its episodes, and it's all right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if, like, we sat down and watched a bunch, I could say, like, oh, yeah, I do remember watching <laughs> this. But none of the, like, the real plot points and stuff. My mom used to have the big bound collections of the, the EC comics. Okay. Um, so I know the stories from there more than I know. You know the actual adaptations? Yeah. Or... I, but I know some of them were, like, directly adapted. For, or not directly, but like with their their spin on it. But the stories themselves, like, were shadows of the of the EC versions, and um, uh, that was always fun. Yeah. I was have to ask then: um, Were you a fan of like the sort of like nineties teen horror boom when we have things like Goosebumps and Point Horror, uh, really making sort of horror more accessible for sort of teenage audiences? Uh, I mean, were you ever a fan of those sort of series growing up? I was a little too old for Goosebumps, but they had the um, the Fear Street books, which are also R.L. Stein. Um, I used to read those like in a day. I would go to the bookstore, I would buy it, I would run home and sit in my room and read the entire thing. So, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good too. I mean, it's it's nice that we're having this nostalgia really for 90s horror and especially like the teen horror things like oh, yeah the dark and that so it's really great this halloween seeing so many people sort of jump on this nostalgia wagon for these uh these shows and that and i don't think that there's been a sort of show to sort of take the place of these ones i mean we've obviously got the film version of goosebumps coming out which i wasn't excited to see until i saw the gnomes now i really want to see it Oh yeah, it's not, it hasn't been on my radar at all. I'm I'm curious if it's something that I would enjoy. Obviously, on to your second selection this evening, uh, yes. 1973's Sisters, directed by Brian De Palma, um, a director who, for myself, I still have large chunks of his back catalogue to see. I mean, obviously, seen the main titles such as Scarface, The Untouchables, and Mission Impossible. So this was a again another first time viewing, and especially something from his early films. The film itself, it's follows uh, this young writer um, who witnesses a murder at a neighbor's apartment and finds herself 
involved in this conspiracy uh, to, to actually cover up the murder. And as she goes deeper into the case, she finds out that not everything may be as what it seems with her neighbour. Had you seen this one before? Again, was this a, a random pick for yourself there, Christine? I have seen this one before. I, I, when I went through my original I Have to See Every De Palma movie phase, I watched this one. So you're an established fan of De Palma, is that correct? I am. I guess you could call it that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan, and the comparisons are frequent and justified. So, I think with this one especially, it's, it's a <gasps> yes, real... Yes, this is, this is Rear Window. I mean... Yeah, it, it was. It's Hitchcock influence on its sleeve. I mean, the fact is De Palma drafted Bernard uh, Herrmann, who yeah. did, obviously, the Psycho score. And here he essentially recycles the Psycho score. He puts in a couple of different notes here and there, but it's essentially just the psycho score we get again. And I really, really enjoyed this one. So, uh, um, yeah, it's a good one. Obviously, it opens with a candid, candid, rare style TV show called Peepin' Tom. And here we see the advertising salesman, uh, Philip, here played by Lars Wilson. And he's aspiring uh, on the supposedly blind uh, Danel, here played by Margaret Kidder. And, of course, it turns out that she's not actually blind and it's just all part of a elaborate prank. The two the two of them being given gifts for appearing on this show, which apparently only has one round. I guess they, 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 they rush you off real quick, too. Yeah, so... Um, and this is the opening scene. The reason I'm concerned so much is because this is the start of many disturbing parts of this film. We see Danielle get given a knife set. Yes. Where Philip... The, the only black guy in the film is given dinner at uh, the African Lounge, which yep. is the most, how can we put this, racist-themed restaurant. It's very sort of like this caricature version of Africa, mm-hmm. down to the fact that the waiters are black guys in straw skirts with bowler hats, while you have all these African drummers playing in the background. And it's sort of like, why does the black guy get forced to go to the African theme restaurant while she gets a set of knives? It's pretty terrible, and I think even when they reveal the prize, he makes a face too. Um, um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of shocking that sort of open uh, racism. But I mean, what did you make of the scene? Did you just put it down to something intentional or just like a sign of the times, really? Um, I think it could be either. I do think that it was. Like blatant, it was blatant racism for sure. Whether it was whether it was just because that would play with audiences fine, or if it was feeding into the narrative. Because I mean, he his his race does play into the narrative. It's it's his murder is oh, spoiler his his murder <laughs> is um kind of chalked up to like you know how those people are. And Grace, the reporter even uses it as a leveraging point like so you're just going to ignore a black guy getting murdered with the character philip he's such a nice guy he's the nicest guy to I mean, his detriment he has a one night stand uh this is what i love he has a one night stand with uh Danelle, yes. and then goes out and buys her a birthday cake yes and he even has it iced not only to her but her crazy ass twin sister as well yes um who he hears like in the background and and what happened what does he get for his trouble he gets stabbed to death he gets stabbed to death he gets stabbed pretty violently 
Yeah, he gets stabbed. It, I thought it was the crotch, but it's actually the thigh. Yeah, it's pretty upsetting, though. Either way. And basically, this is obviously the what what sets sets off the really the story really because obviously we've got that young reporter here, Grace, um, who's not warmed herself to the police, should we say, by writing all these smear pieces on police brutality, and she even has this great article called "Why We Call Them Pigs." Uh-huh, yeah, I liked um, her it's articles. I'm kind of surprised that the police don't want to help her. While she obviously witnessed this murder, the police, they don't want to have anything to do with her. They kind of just brush it under the carpet, and she has to hire a private detective and come and do her own investigation. And at the same time, we've got Danelle's ex-husband, Emil, played here by William Finney, who's really, really creepy. And I love the fact that he appears in the audience on at the start and I know, it's he's, book, he's completely <laughs> uninterested in the show whatsoever but he's a, he's just a fascinating character and there's so many interesting characters in this even though there's not a huge amount of characters all of them are interesting in their own way yeah it's, it's really and all the acting is really really good just to speak to that point like everyone really delivers so with such a small cast like you get just consistent amazing performances even from Margot Kidder who like for me, is kind of touch and go sometimes. I'm not always very pro her, but she's fantastic in this. And William Finley is wonderful and creepy and upsetting. I mean, what is it about this film that, that you that you obviously like? I mean, we just might as well warn ahead that we are going to go into spoilers. So if you haven't seen Sisters, go see it now. It is awesome. That's my recommendation. But obviously, if uh, you want to uh, stick with us, there will be spoilers ahead. So I mean, what did you obviously take away from this uh, this film? What's, what did you like about it? Um, I like a lot of the, I don't really, not to say that I don't like the ending, but I kind of start to fall out towards the ending. Um, so for me, it's not really the story that I'm there for. It is the characters and it is a lot of the, the way in which they tell the story. I really like that it starts out as um, Margot Kidder's, her story, like we... We're introduced to her and Philip, like, right at the beginning. We follow them to dinner. We follow them back to her apartment. We follow him to the store. Like, it's their movie. And then all of a sudden, we it's like the camera splits, the first split screen of the movie. And one camera stays in the apartment with Philip, and one pulls all the way back to the apartment with Grace. And it becomes Grace's movie. And, and that's so amazing. I, I love that. I love that it starts out with this narrative and you think, all right, well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm hanging out with Margot Kidder for the next hour and a half. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, nope, your main character is actually this plucky reporter. Um, it's fantastic. That split screen is also wonderful. It, it is, is. It I... is one of two wonderful split screens in this. Okay. I mean, how would you rate, obviously, the split screen sequence? I mean... For the, myself, this split screen sequence is really up there with like the rules of attraction uh, for their split screen sequence, and it, it's it's so good. You said it's it's, it's so really effective. Good. You don't have trouble focusing on which is normally the problem with split screen is what's happening because it's timed in such a way that you can focus on one, and then it's like oh they're just not doing anything interesting. I'll look at this other person now. So yep, and and they the the next split screen instance is um it kind of it follows both parties like uh, William Finley and Mario Kidder cleaning up the apartment and then Grace and all the and the cops coming up to the apartment it's following them and and there's a point where it intersects and it's great and then at, at one point it kind of all lands on Margot Kidder and one camera is behind her 
and one is in front of her and it's exactly what you said like you're never distracted it almost doesn't feel like a split screen you just feel like you can see a 360 of of what's going on yeah so yeah i love that to an obsessive degree yeah, I mean, I love the quote that De Palma obviously gave because, I mean, he's openly admitted the fact he doesn't remember we got the idea for using uh, the split screen. But, I mean, the quote he obviously gives for his use of it is like, he just refers to it as, it's a kind of meditative form. You can go very slowly with it because there's a lot to look at. People are making juxtapositions in their minds and you can have all this exposition mumbo-jumbo on one side. I can't really argue with that. I think it's a very effective way of telling the story and it's really one of the standout moments of the film um i can agree with yourself towards the end it does get a bit stupid mm-hmm. especially of how it's been built up built up to this point but then again i think you consider the same about a lot of hitchcock's works the fact that they got kind of bizarre towards the end psycho again being a prime example it has that wonderful build-up and i think it's shortly after the, the investigator's death in psycho that it kind of loses its way it kind of comes falls apart more and um, I think now that the ending is so well known, it it kind of loses its power in some ways, really. I yeah. It's probably not as effective as it was, but again, when I feel that I was kind of like feeling that I've overrated this movie, it has that wonderful end sequence of um, where he's sitting, obviously, in the, the police waiting room and it's all inside his mind. I've, that uh, reminds me why I love Psycho so much, but mm-hmm. I can understand why Department would obviously use Hitchcock as as his reference point, really, and basically his idea is to rip a lot of things off. Yeah, I'm, I, but it's re- to me it's less of a re- rip-off and more of a reappropriation. Like, he's telling a modern, for him, what was a modern rear window, you know? So much of rear window wouldn't work hmm. if he, they tried to tell it in the 70s. Um, and it's not all rear window, obviously. There's the the whole thing that he loves to do with duality. It's very literal in this with Siamese twins. Um, and he does what he does at the end when when I start to get lost is when they get to the clinic or whatever you want to call this, wherever Margot Kidder's getting treatment and William Finley is the doctor. That's where I really start to fall out. But there's that that weird dream sequence slash video footage where all of a sudden grace is like injected into it and she becomes the surrogate twin um that stuff i think is really great but i just wish it didn't go on for so long and i wish that it didn't take us so long to get there after yeah it's and it follows on because obviously in that that scene which again this is a real problem with the narrative really because we obviously have um Grace goes into the goes into the into the the mental hospital, and then she's committed with like yep. little little protests whatsoever, which just made no absolute sense. And we obviously have the scene where she's being hypnotized to like forget the the murder that it was all in her mind, mm-hmm. and then department chooses to combine that scene with obviously the flashback to us conjoined twins, yep. uh, so we obviously find out the history of Danelle. And when we obviously get into that flashback sequence, and especially the separation scene, which I think has more—it seems more of like a satanic ritual than a form of surgical procedure. Yes. Um, I don't think using a hatchet or a cleaver to uh, separate Siamese twins is like the traditional way. Uh, nor do you do it poolside. 
Well, I think that was supposed to be allegorical. Okay. <laughs> I just thought this is like this is like really laid back surgery. They just all hang out in the pool and. Well, I think I think all of that stuff is allegorical because it's not. It can't be literal because it's not. It's not two Margot Kidders. It's it's Danielle and Grace at that point. Yeah. It's really. I think it's really cool. I think they really present you with some interesting imagery. And but again, for me, it just goes on a tiny bit too long and the lead up to get there is a little bit much and then once Grace is not hallucinating or dreaming or whatever is happening it's still going on and it's just like alright let's finish this up you mentioned already the scene where they're cleaning they're cleaning up the body uh, yeah. Philip, and they do this whole cleaning section and Emil ends up with a red mark on his forehead now yes. I'm not sure if I missed something, but I was sure that was like blood splatter that he put like his hand on his head and had a had a bloody mark there, because he never seems to disappear. Oh, he fell. Oh, he fell, did he? He he, he falls really, really dramatically, and it's kind of funny. I wasn't sure what that was. I was sure that he had the, like the like this bloody mark from obviously cleaning up, and that he, the direction he face planted big time. Oh, I, I must have missed that because I was like, he's still got the same mark at the end, and I was like, does this guy never wash or something? And it's like <laughs> there was this still bloody mark on there, but uh, that actually makes more sense now. So thank you for explaining that one. No problem. But I love the character of Emil. I think he's really creepy, and the fact that he's introduced as being the controlling ex-husband. Yeah. And then we obviously find out that he's not actually the ex-husband. He's a doc, the doctor who separated the twins. Um, and I love that twist. I mean, he's a fascinating character right from the get-go. Even when he's just sitting in the audience, you can tell there's something about his character, really. Yeah, he's a real creep. I love him. Um, but, again, this is just a throwback to Rear Window, where we've obviously got the prime investigator, Joseph, in, mm -hmm. played by Ch Charles Durning. And he's in the apartment, and he's cleaning the windows. But, like, doing a really half-assed job, and I'm thinking... Why are you trying to do a cover when there's no one actually in no the No one's there. No one can see you. Yep, it's very funny, though. Um, and it's so tense, the scene, because obviously you have Emil and you have Danelle coming back in the apartment. And somehow, for like for not a big, for a pretty big guy, he manages to somehow avoid them. I know. I like how it just doesn't really even explain that. He just kind of thumbs up outside the window and then manages to get out again. Not yeah. really. Not really that slick. <laughs> Probably not. Another great character. He's not in a huge deal and really gives us that wonderful ending where... <gasps> yeah, the ending is... So, just when you think you're, that it's lost you and you're like, oh, well, that kind of... The ending is like, oh, no, that was actually really good. So, I mean, did you like the ending? I know that I the love ending kind of divided ending. some people. I love the ending. Because he's... Like, you take that character out of the movie. Like, he's gone you you forget about him, and yeah. then you realize like oh because he's been following the couch the whole time. Yeah, it's great. I mean, just to go back to the actual sisters themselves. I mean, we obviously find out that these conjoined twins that that uh, well, we obviously think there's two sisters. It's actually all in Danielle's head. She's mm -hmm. took on the personality of both twins, so she's her normal personality, and then she's got the personality of a psychotic twin who sort of comes to the forefront whenever there's any sort of romantic connection. Was it just me, or did uh, she seem to have a costume change? Because she's sort of in a nighty before, and mm -hmm. then we have the murder of Philip, and she seems to be wearing a black pullover. She's wearing a black sweater when she's under the um, 
under the covers and when she like kind of leaps after him and attacks him you can see that it's still the white nightgown underneath because again this is something i i missed I've, i think i was just caught up in just the surprising violence of the scene i've yeah it's, it's so of, violent uh, a real sort of grime grimy sort of death scene than i was expecting of yeah, it's like, really vicious. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously seeing, unlike uh, Hitchcock, we actually do see penetration by knife, and we see bloody wounds, so it's got that, that sort of Jalio style of violence, especially mm. with the blood being that paint red that the Italians seem to love um, in their sort of slashes. It's nice to see that again, seeing its uh, influence here. And it also surprised me that this is a film produced by American International Pictures, which... Yep. It seems like a more classier picture than I would expect from them. <laughs> um, it's pretty classy, yeah. I mean, it is kind of sleazy, though, if you think about it. Yeah, it's sleazy, but it's not, not, not sleazy that. as so many other films there, such as, like, Devil's Reign or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not that quality of sleazy. It's, you know, highbrow sleaze. Yeah, <laughs> my favorite kind of sleaze. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I mean... Again, this is a film where, really, for the most part, you're not sure what's going on. Um, why Danielle always seems so keen to sort of cover up for her sister's murder, and yeah, all these sort of like weird flashbacks we get to where they seem to be like in a covent at one point, and you see the girls, the two conjoined twins, in one piece swimsuits, which I think I spent a, a stupid amount of time trying to figure out how that came together that outfit how that worked yeah i don't know maybe like snaps somewhere I don't, as i said i just i was like i was probably spent an unhealthy amount of time trying to figure out how that how that worked or how they would even get into that so it's a simple simple effect they use but it's like everything in this film it's just so effective it's a simple story but it's totally mm-hmm. effectively it's as a nice twist even if it is kind of like a i don't know could the storyline be considered cliche or is it because it's sort of like something that we've seen redone so many times? I mean, even The Simpsons parodied this with the two Barts. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, I mean, is it, I don't know. It's I don't think it's cliche, but I don't really have any way to back that up. I just don't think it is. <laughs> I mean, do you agree then with the film, the uh, poster for the film, which makes the proclaim that this is the most generally frightening film since Hitchcock's Psycho? Which no. is quite a claim because Psycho's scary. I don't think I I don't think I agree with that, but it's really good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are you a Hitchcock fan generally? Yes, love, and love, 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 love. I know you've uh, you certainly named you named uh, Psycho as one of your top films when you did your episode fifty, the feminine critique. Yeah. Uh, you named it amongst your amongst your selections. It was your your name at least top twenty five. I'm right in saying. I think so. I think that's what we did. Yeah. And obviously, there's a load of Muppet movies in there as well. Which yep. Another discussion entirely. So, I mean, you're obviously a Hitchcock fan. I mean, do you sort of get more out of the sort of the references that the department throws in, these sort of, like, homages, if you will? Um, maybe? I I mean, I always look at um, De Palma as an extension of Hitchcock rather than someone who's aping him. Um, kind of what type of movies Hitchcock may have made if he made films into the 70s. So, yeah, I, I, I like that they're homages or you know, references or whatever in the movies. It just, it adds another, like, like I kind of said, it's like 
shorthand to me. Like you yeah. have just explained something to me because I, I get the language that you're speaking. Yeah. I mean, you can obviously watch this film without having Hitchcock as your reference point. Not that Yeah, for film. sure. Um, so, it, I mean, it works on that response. It's just fun when you obviously, if you're familiar with the obviously references to obviously CMS, you said you've got Rear Window in there. You Obviously, Psycho is a big uh, influence here. And Would you say, what other films would you say uh, sort of referenced here? Well, the first time I watched it, I remember going like, and it's also like that movie, but I can't grab it right now. Um, it's stuck in my head somewhere. Um, because it's not completely rear window. It, it goes off on some tangents. There's, um, I have to look it up. I can't sound completely smart. But um, there's a sequence in a Hitchcock film that is um, really interesting. And I think Salvador, Salvador Dali did it. It's, I think, the Ingrid Bergman movie with um, Gregory Peck, if I'm remembering. can't think of it. Notorious. No, 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 Spellbound. Spellbound, I'm a liar. It's Spellbound. It's Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. And there's this really interesting little, like, dream sequence in the middle that's all Salvador Dali. And the, the at the end, the dream trance, whatever thing that Grace is in, really reminds me of that. It's almost like a different style of filmmaking within this larger film. Any sort of final thoughts on this one? Anything that you uh, think we should cover that we haven't already geez i don't know um not really i, I mean i just like i can just reiterate that i really like the grace character i think she's great <laughs> yeah that's fine. i'm glad i'm glad that it became her movie because i don't know i don't know and rightfully so i think if i could totally have gotten behind watching uh, margot kidder's character for almost two hours yeah i love the fact that yes she's uh, a journalist but mm-hmm. she's not your usual sort of the way that we would expect sort of like a, a female journalist to be played. She's not sort of like this headstrong uh, sort of character and, and that she knows when to sort of back down and that she's not constantly forcing herself forward. Uh, yeah. Where that you can't, you see like a Lois Lane style sort of character, which seems to be like the template for every female female reporter that sort of followed. Mm-hmm. She's very interesting and she's actually, I mean, She's introduced fast, but her character becomes real clear and real apparent just as fast. Like, he throws her in there, and you've got, like, a full-fledged human right away. It's great. Yeah. I think the real sort of background we get to her character is just through her her pieces of work, her her articles that she's uh, obviously got seen. It's really just the headlines that you can sort of read and that, that you get the idea of what sort of drives her. And she's really someone who's trying to sort of push herself career forward and really make a difference rather than just write sort of like puff pieces for like the local paper she wants to be exposing scandals and yeah you know fraudulent spending police corruption these sorts of uh subjects rather than than these sort of puff pieces. but of course at the same time it's not warming her to the local police force it would seem so <laughs> yeah it's really interesting though i like i like the type of character he chose to to make you know She's not typical. For viewing, where do you really go from here? Um, geez. I think if you're... I mean, if you haven't seen Rear Window, do Rear Window. Um, or do some De Palma. I really like, and I'm blanking on the title of this one again, my brain is just fried. The most recent one he did that no one liked, Passion. <laughs> okay. I really, I really liked Passion. There's um, a similarly good split screen in that, I believe. Um, so, And I think that, that it deals with a lot of 
weird female stuff. Like, this is a very, like, female-centric movie, which a lot of his... I can't say aren't, but, I mean, at least his later stuff tends to not be as focused on his female characters. Um, I think Dressed to Kill would be a good double feature with this. Um, that would be a lot of fun, actually. I want to go watch that now. It's just it's just a really good movie with some strong female characters. Yeah, yeah I want to watch this and maybe body double. Yeah, that's officially what I'm saying. Body double for the sleaze <laughs> and the duality. That's what you should do. Okay, that's what <laughs> I'll watch next then. Have you not seen Body Double? I've not seen Body Double. There's so much as this. Oh space. my god, I love that movie. I mean, okay, if you if for if you're someone like myself who's yes. not seen much department, they've seen like the hits. Yes. Where would you recommend going if we're just like talking about the early sort of films? So. Um, if you haven't seen Blowout, you really need to see Blowout. Okay, that's on the list. Yeah. So. That that's great, but I mean, if you really wanted something that kind of had a similar. Because, I mean, Body Double is also Rear Window. Like, oops, he did it again. It's Rear Window again. And there's a lot of interesting duality stuff. So it would be cool to kind of pair the movies. And that one's really, really sleazy, too. And violent. Like, shockingly violent, too. You should watch that, like, right this second. (laughs) Okay. I mean, this is the second time that you recommended me something. And it's gone on straight into my, like, favorites list. Oh, well, good, yeah. Um, the first, obviously, being Phantom of the Paradise, which we reviewed on the first appearance on the show you did. Yes. Um, which is, again, another department movie. Yes. So. I told you, this is my new thing. <laughs> so now that you're two for two, you're selling me on Depalma. Because up until this point, I'd seen, like, as I said, I've seen Untouchables. I've seen, like, Casualties of War, which I think everyone's seen, but. I've never seen that. Casualties of War, it's, I think, because it's, again, it's the subject of uh, rape. Yeah. Um, it's one of my least favorite of the Vietnam War movies. Um, I certainly don't rank it along sort of like my favorite things like Full Metal Jacket or Platoon. Those are sort of like favorite movies of, of that particular era of war, uh, mm-hmm. like Hamburg Hill. Because it's, obviously, the whenever you introduce rape into any story, it's the focus of the story. There's no... Yeah. You can't sort of like use it as a as a side uh, sort of plot story. It it has to be the be all and end all. And it's certainly a, a brave film for someone, especially like Michael J. Fox, who at this point was probably best known for like the Back to the Future movies, to go mm-hmm. and make a movie like Casualties of War. So kudos to himself. And Sean Penn is truly despicable in that movie. But again, you need to have an actor who's going to be brave enough to play that sort of bastard yeah. role any more than sort of plays off and obviously everything else that I've sort of seen has been like his later sort of lesser return stuff things like Mission to Mars which I know yourself and Emily are kind of obsessed over am I so right in saying I don't know I just I don't I'm just that's a bizarre movie I have nothing else to say about it <laughs> um a lot of the later ones or the the greatest hits rather I either don't really care for or haven't seen so I'm I like early and I guess now late, Diploma. <laughs> okay, that's that's fine. I mean, obviously, I've you've given me uh, something something to to go on to, and I've I've looked forward to obviously discussing how those ones went with you, if not Woo-hoo. those films and your next appearance here. You can you can write me down for Body Double if you want, because okay. I've I've written about that extensively. I cannot shut up about it sometimes. I love that movie. It's 
it's wild. Okay, you had air. Well, next time Christina's <laughs> on, we will be looking at body double. Woo-hoo. So that's uh, something to look forward to. I guess that brings us to the end of uh, another edition of uh, the Mad Bad Direct Strange Showcase. Uh, thank you again for Christine for obviously coming on and making this such a fun episode to record. Well, thank you for having me. Obviously, hope as always, uh, hopefully we'll be getting you back on soon. I, I don't see why not. Now I'm, I I really just want to go watch Body Doubles. <laughs> the sooner you give me an excuse to do that, the better. So, but yeah, now obviously I've got Body Double, I've got Blowout to watch. I think I've got Fury to watch as well. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you think about that. Or the Fury? Mm-hmm. I'm not wild about it, but I really think there's a lot of great stuff there. Okay. Um, and something I did forget to talk about before we obviously do sign off. Have you seen the remake of uh, Sisters? No. Uh, in 2006, uh, with Chloe Chabonny and Stephen Rea and Lou Dolian. Um, no, I have not. It's been on a list forever, and I've never gotten around to it. Maybe on purpose. Um, currently going with the tagline of "Yet Another Pointless Horror Remake" by Preppy Free on IMDb. Oh, fun. So I don't know. Uh, what you're feeling the preppy freeze reviews are, but uh, they don't seem to enjoy it by looks of things. Oh no, I don't know. Maybe if it's something that ever kind of like shows up in like a streaming capacity, I would watch it, but I don't know if I'm going to seek it out. Um, obviously, in your own projects, what have uh, you got coming up at the moment? Just writing. I'm working on some horror poems, trying to get them published, and if, if no one wants them, then I shall do it myself. So. That Self- that will be done. Pioneering self yes. <laughs> or publishing the things that no one else wants to. Yes. We're now in this wonderful era where you can self-publish very easily. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's meant there's a lot of dreck that's now getting out there that should never see the light of day. But um, you, I mean, if you anyone who is listening to the show hasn't uh, read you for Wake Up Maggie or your short stories collection, I urge you to check them out now. Um, Definitely worth breaking my no ebook rule for. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's a solid rule, but I appreciate you breaking it. I think I'm just too much of a, because I obviously, I'm too much a fan of having books there, just having the physical presence of a book. I do, I don't connect well with ebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just like the physical presence and the fact that when you're looking at a computer screen for how many hours and you know a TV screen or whatnot, so. It's nice to have that break, which a book provides you with. Um, I agree. I still, I still do hard copy books for sure. So, I mean, any particular authors that you are holding your interest at the moment? Um, Gillian Flynn, Forever and Always, but I'm still waiting for her. I have to check when her next thing's coming out. I've been reading a lot about the um, Salem Witch Trials, so I'm not really keeping things current right now. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Anything in particular has uh, been good on in that particular? Uh, area or um i just think it's really fascinating and disturbing and upsetting so i i don't know i don't know why i'm i'm just really going for it lately um and obviously people can as always find you on the feminine critique for your yes. self and your partner in crime miss emily and Javina. yep and i'm easily found on twitter at para xteen um so yeah um but again thank you christine for coming on and uh sharing the films that you sharing the two films with us this evening. It's been a blast as always to have you on and I look forward to having you back on soon. Woohoo, thank you. It was great to be here. 
Um, and thank you again for everyone for listening. If you've uh, not done already, if you did enjoy the show, please do leave us uh, some comments on either iTunes or Podomatic. Uh, leave us some nice words uh, or just a rating. It's all appreciated. Uh, you can also leave some nice uh, words on the Facebook page or just thoughts on the show, films you want us to see. Uh, the Twitter is always open as well, which is at Elwood underscore Jones. Uh, so, fair of options there, and as always, you can find all the contact details and links in the description section below. Uh, but thank you again for listening. Thank you again for Christine for coming on. And this is Edward Jones signing off another edition of the Bad, Bad and Direct Strange Showcase. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange.